O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds and company with men who work iniquity. Let me not eat their delicacies. We thank the Lord for his word. So why might God allow temptation into the life of a believer? Could it be that he sees value in our running to him in worship to avoid such temptation? Could temptation serve to remind us day by day of our need for Jesus, lest we make something of ourselves apart from him? Could it serve as a reminder of the lostness of our unbelieving friends, relatives, co-workers, and neighbors? We see from the word very clearly that all things even sin and temptation exist for the ultimate end of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And he uses all these things in the life of a believer for the opportunity to see his glory and for us to worship in seeking him for rescue from it. So you have an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along with a couple sections here. First of all, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. We're going to see this idea of submitting and worship to the Lord in light of temptation. So if you've studied Hebrew poetry, you probably have come across the idea of parallelism. As we look to these first four verses, remember that parallelism is the foundation of Hebrew poetry. Authors use two lines to build an idea through an initial statement, followed by a second statement that repeats and often expands upon the original idea. David's urgent dependence on the Lord is evident in his request, hasten to me. He's not unaware of God's omnipresence, we should say at first, the fact that God is everywhere all the time. He does not believe God is limited to a geographical location, but he does know that there is a sense that God's manifest presence opens our eyes to the reality of who he is, giving evidence to the fact that the goal of prayer is to change not primarily our circumstances or our situations, but to change ourselves. It's hard for us to grab onto that sometimes. Usually when circumstances and trials come our way, our thought is we need to pray because why? Well, because prayer is the thing that we use to hopefully make those things go away. And indeed, that is a purpose of prayer. But if that is the only purpose of prayer, is that an end in itself? Is that enough glory for God? Is that what God truly desires? I'd have to say probably not. That change that we ought to be looking for in prayer, and again, I'm not trying to say here that we should neglect to pray for God to change our circumstances and situations. But I might ask you, if you've been in a situation where you've prayed for the situation to go away, and prayed and prayed and prayed, and nothing seems to be changing, and maybe it's even getting worse, what might God's ultimate end be in having you pray over that thing? Because he wants us to pray, right? He even gives us, Jesus has given us examples, or rather parables, of how we ought to continue in prayer and be steadfast in prayer. 
Well, if he's never going to remove the circumstances, then what's the point? The point has to be that he wants to change our hearts. And through that time of seeking him in the situation, build in us a true and real dependency on him alone. That change might look like this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the prominent Welsh pastor preacher of the 20th century, speaking of Thomas Goodwin, who was a Puritan many years before, Lloyd-Jones wrote in his book, Joy Unspeakable, he says this of Thomas Goodwin's quote, he describes a man and his little child, his son, walking down the road, and they are walking hand in hand. And the child knows that he is the child of his father. He knows that his father loves him. He rejoices in that, and he is happy in it. There's no uncertainty about it at all, but suddenly the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of that child, picks him up, cuddles him in his arms, kisses him, embraces him, showers his love upon him, and then puts him down again, and they go on walking together. Lloyd-Jones says, that is it. The child knew before that his father loved him. And he knew that he was his child, but oh, this loving embrace, this extra outpouring of love, this unusual manifestation of it, that is the kind of thing, the spirit bearing witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. When we call out to him in prayer, what we're calling out to him to do is not hasten to me as though you are far from me. Help me to realize how close you truly are is what David is praying. Open my eyes to that reality. And what does he do in light of it? Does he explain things further to us? No, rather, he picks us up. He showers his love upon us. It's pretty fantastic. Beloved, in the face of temptation, know that the Lord is not far from you. Cry out. Cry out to God as David does in this first verse. What father would watch as his child in danger, crying out to him, would choose to not be there with him in the struggle? Remember, we follow a Savior who was crucified, who only after suffering did he enter the joy that was before him. So in your suffering, in your temptation even, do not surmise that because he has not removed the suffering or the temptation, that God wishes to be distant from you. God loves to save and make a way of escape through complete trust in him in the midst of challenges. He's with you in the garden, just as the angel ministered to Jesus under the weight of where he was going. The Holy Spirit of God is with you, reminding you of his presence, reminding you of his goodness, his love for you and thus empowering you to overcome temptation and glorify him. The Puritan prayer book, The Valley of Vision, I mentioned earlier, includes a line in a prayer of contentment. It writes, the writer says rather, let me willingly accept misery, sorrows, temptations, if I can thereby feel sin as the greatest evil and be delivered from it with gratitude to thee, acknowledging this as the highest testimony of thy love. Persecution, disease, natural disaster, poverty, all are commonly held as the greater foes of humanity in the world. But none of those things can bring about eternal condemnation. Temptation is the call to indulge in sinful desires that bring about a self-destructive end. 
David, the man after God's own heart, the one almost constantly in danger by human enemies, was more concerned that he would not make an enemy of God by giving into temptation. David sees this as a matter of great urgency. Again, he prays, hasten to me. I need you now. Take me up in your arms in this moment of temptation. Be my escape. Notice in this first verse, the word repeated is the word call. He calls on the Lord requesting that he both hurry to his aid and listen to his complaint. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. How shall the Lord answer such a request? Will he delay to respond? Will a father allow his child a moment of struggle where he would wait to be near him through it all? Notice David is not asking for the removal of the temptation. But why not? Does he recognize that allowing temptation is part of the Lord's plan for his people on earth? Has he, like Paul, learned the secret of contentment lies in the strength of the Lord to overcome any obstacle that he has allowed in our path, even temptation to sin? Could he say with Paul that the Lord has taught him that his grace is sufficient, his grace is enough for him? That the power of God is made perfect in our weakness. Is David boasting in his weakness before God by falling on his knees, raising his hands to heaven, and imploring his God to save him? I think the answer to all these questions is yes. Think of where we first hear of David. David is anointed to be the king of Israel, but the first big thing that everyone knows about him is that he kills a giant. It's, it's, the favorite, it's, it's Nora's favorite Bible story, at least already right now. But it's one that we certainly think of when we think of David. If anybody could have reason to have confidence in the flesh, as Paul says of himself in the New Testament, if we're talking about anybody like that in the Old Testament, it's probably David. David went up and said, hey, you come against me with a sword and spear, I come to you in the name of the Lord, throws a rock at his forehead, and he's done. If anybody could be tempted to trust in themselves, I think it'd be David. He doesn't. Not a bit. So should we. God is working in and through his people to make them more like Christ. We call that sanctification making us progressively holy from one degree of glory to the next, Paul writes. He allows us to struggle with sin through that process. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit to make us holy progressively more like Christ. And we experience in that progress a growing hatred for sin and a growing love of God. And God, who desires the glory to be all to his son, and Jesus, who desires the glory all to be to the Father, will say, in temptation, I want you to learn not just how great God is to save you from it, I want you to hate sin more and more and more as you go through this life, so that more and more of your love is given to him. And if you've walked with Christ for any length of time and struggled through temptation to sin and struggled to kill sin in your life, as Romans 8.13 tells us, to put to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit, if you've done that for any length of time, then you know the more your hatred for sin grows, the more your love for God increases even more. Anything that God could use to make you love Him more, He's going to use. 
And so temptation continues till the day we are with him. Praise the Lord. David's prayer calls on the Lord's sovereignty to grant victory over temptation. Remember Israel's exodus from Egypt, the great crescendo of the story. They approached the Red Sea, and they heard the chariots of Pharaoh quickly approaching them, and they were overwhelmed. The Lord did not grant them the ability to overcome their enemies on their own. Rather, his manifest presence in the pillar of smoke stood between them and the Egyptians. Moses says in Exodus 14.14 to them, just before he parts the Red Sea, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be... Does anybody know? Rhymes with silent. Yeah, still silent, right? Yeah. Just look. Moses doesn't mean that we ought not call out to God when we need salvation. They, the Israelites, needed to quietly trust in the Lord because their worry had overtaken them. And remember who these people are. All the plagues had happened. God was very clear what he wanted to do in taking Israel out of Egypt. And sure enough, as they're on their way, they've plundered Egypt. They're, they're carrying gold and silver and all these wonderful things. They're on their way to the promised land. They see Pharaoh coming and they see the ocean ahead of them and they go, oh, we should have just stayed in Egypt. Are you kidding me, Israel? Give me a break, man. That's ridiculous. You saw all these things and yet you still doubt the salvation of the Lord. And hopefully now you're feeling in your heart that same kind of complaining. You're remembering moments where you think, Lord, why will you not take this away? Why is this still a problem in my life? Wouldn't it just have been better for you not to save me at all? Why am I even bothering this whole Christian life thing? I only point that out because I've heard it in my own heart. And I'm not even saying that I've heard it in my heart many years ago. I'm saying months, weeks, weeks. Maybe I'm alone. I hope I'm not alone, guys. Maybe some of you could nod your heads and say, I get this, right? Um, thank you. <laughs> Whew. It is a risk to come up here and reveal your heart. Um, because it's a serious thing. I, man, there are times that I just look at it and I go, Lord, why even bother? What? This is just, you know, the temptation comes. My weakness is so incredibly evident. What are you doing? Why don't you just take over? The Israelites, having seen the amazing salvation that God had given them, could they ever possibly doubt his future salvation again? Yes, and so can we, and we have an even greater salvation. We know that Jesus hung on the cross, bled, and died in our place. You think an ocean parting, a sea rather, a sea parting in half and walking across on dry ground is incredible. Think about the Son of God becoming sin for you so that you can become the righteousness of God. And what is greater? We have that truth to, to launch off of in the face of temptation, and yet still we, we struggle, and still we wonder, and still we doubt. And through it all, the Lord is working and working and working and working. And you can look back on life, and I pray if you've walked with Christ, you can look back and you can see that those days are behind me. Temptation's still real today, but it's not like it was before addictions, shortcomings, all of our weaknesses, the Lord overcomes them over time so that we can learn that every good thing comes from him. Amen. Christians submit to a God who has built a reputation of saving his people. 
And therefore, we have a greater hope in him for salvation from temptation day to day. He is a God who will hear us when we call and offer him the praise of being the one we turn to to face a battle for our very soul. If David was concerned about this, how much more should we? In Christ, we have abundant confidence that God is serious about saving us from sin. And that zeal does not diminish once the penalty for sin has been dealt with. If you remember, this train of, of salvation, this walk that we walk in with Christ, begins with justification. Begins with God making us right at the cross through what Jesus has done. Then, as we are justified and made new and regenerated, that work is applied to our hearts. We walk through a process of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus progressively, growing in love for the things that he loves and growing in hatred for the things that he hates. And then ultimately, what's the last chain in that? What's the last thing when we stand before Christ? Justification, sanctification, and then glorification. When was the last time you thought about the fact that one day you're never going to be tempted again? I read this verse all week long and I kind of forgot about glorification until yesterday. What a great motivation to forget about. I mean, come on. One day there will be no more temptation, so deal with it today because there's a day coming where it's going to be done. He will not only save us as a justification, he saved us from the penalty of sin. And in sanctification, he is saving us from the power of sin. Sin's power is weakening as you walk more and more with Christ. But one day when we are with him, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. It will have no power, no penalty, and absolutely no presence. Can you imagine how easy it is for us to sin right now? But one day when we're with him perfectly, we won't even have the temptation to anymore. What's the difference? The difference is being in God's presence, seeing him for who he was. How was it that Adam and Eve fell to temptation in the garden? God wasn't there in his manifest presence with them. He stepped back, in a sense, to allow that to happen so that his ultimate plan of glorifying Christ would take place. But the thing is, is that the, the devil, the serpent, came in at a moment when Adam and Eve were vulnerable, when their eyes were not on the Lord. So are you getting the idea of where we're going with submitting to the Lord in temptation? Is realizing that in his sovereign power, my greatest asset to fighting sin in my life is running to him through his word, through prayer, and even through other believers that I know who can run with me. Temptation is used day by day to remind us of the gospel. That the God who has saved us in Christ is saving us in Christ each day and will one day save us again from the presence of temptation. Because Christ has been glorified and is at the right hand of the Father, David's request in verse 2 is answered marvelously. Look again at verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Well, if this is what David is asking of God, what's God's answer? His answer is yes. And we living in the New Testament, living as New Testament saints, rather, know the why behind that. The prayers of the saints are as the smoke of incense before him. The lifting up of hands in worship are like the, the evening sacrifice because Christ's sacrifice was perfectly accepted by the Father. Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.15, we are the aroma of Christ to God. 
our prayers can then be accepted, heard. Our sacrifices, our praises, all of our life of worship to him is the aroma of Christ. It does not matter how long you've walked with Christ. It does not matter how much of the Bible you know. It doesn't matter how good you are at praying or fasting or evangelism. What matters is that you are in Christ. And those who are in Christ are the aroma of Christ to God. What does that mean practically? When you pray, you pray in the position of Christ. You pray through him, with him. You are not Christ, okay? Let's not get this super confused here. We don't become the son of God, but we do become adopted into the family of God. And the way, I mean, think about the prayers that Jesus has prayed. There's another great homework assignment. I got a ton of them for you today. Looking at how Jesus prayed, even in John 17 or in other places, when Jesus prays, how do you think God the Father responds to Jesus of all people? Do you think that God would be like, I don't really have time for you today, Jesus? Of course not. He's the Son of God. He is the Beloved. And so God listens to us because we are in Christ. Acceptable. Pleasing. Pleasing. You you are pleasing to God today if you are in Christ. I hope that if you struggle with that, that you'd be set free. God is pleased with you because you are in Christ. You are heard because you are in Christ. Beloved Christian, worship him today through the temptations that you face. If you want to press on to know him more or to glorify him more in your life, deal with your temptations today by looking to him as the conqueror of an otherwise unconquerable foe. Do not face temptation with discouragement. In Christ, you have all you need to overcome every temptation. We'll read the big verse about that at the end. Submit to him in worship and be amazed, be encouraged, be empowered and joyful in the salvation he offers you to keep you faithful to him day by day by day. Lent is a time for us to to be somber, to be sober-minded, to be reflecting on the fact that Good Friday is coming where we emphasize the cross. But as Paul says, we're not meant to simply be sorrowful or simply be rejoicing. But we are meant to be sorrowful and yet ever rejoicing. Even in the season of Lent where we're reflecting in such a way, let your heart be empowered to joy in knowing that Christ has defeated the grave. He has redeemed you from the penalty of sin. He is growing in you his power to save you from the power of sin because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So, second section, which is going to be much quicker because really I was way too excited about that first section. (laughs) Verse three. But it is exciting, right? I mean, it really is. That ought to... That's good stuff. That ought to, you know, be dynamite power for you. Okay, next thing, verse 3, submit your speech to the Lord. So now we're coming a little bit more practically. That first thing being the idea of submitting to God in worship in the midst of temptation, like letting temptation be an opportunity, an occasion for worship, as though every time you're tempted, the call is go to church and worship God. Now, consider your speech. In light of all this glorious truth that God has shown us in his word, We should follow David's further submissions that we may find victory in temptation and please the Father. So you see the parallelism in verse 3, right? Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. 
So we have set a guard and keep watch. We have mouth and door of my lips. So already, we should note again that David appeals to the sovereignty of God in the midst of his temptation. Our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are by no means in a cosmic tug of war over your soul, wondering who's going to win. Christ has already won. <laughs> And that victory is becoming clearer and clearer and clearer, even as the world is becoming darker and darker and darker. As you walk further with Christ, that victory will be more and more evident in your life. Martin Luther is credited for the saying that goes, the devil is God's devil. Not even the prince of the power of the air has freedom under the sovereignty of God, but rather, through his action, that is God, through God's action, he is fulfilling God's ultimate plans. And you can see this in books like Job in the very beginning. Satan would have never done all the things, brought all those terrible things into Job's life if what didn't happen? Yeah. God not only allowed it, though, my friends. That's true. Take a step further down to the foundation of it. Who brought Job up in the first place? Did Satan say, I've been around and I saw this Job guy. You want, is it okay if I mess his life up a little bit? No. He asked the devil, what have you been doing? I've been here and there, going around the world. And then God says, well, have you considered Job? Have you considered my champion? There's no one else like him. Oh, well, he's only that way because you do good things to him. Okay, take away the good things. Sure enough, he still did not, he did not become faithless towards God. Then the devil came back and God said, okay, you can harm his body now, but don't kill him. Same thing. Job was faithful in the midst of great struggle. And, and in that great struggle, in all the terrible things that you're thinking about, if you've read the book of Job that happens to Job, remember that the underlying real danger of Job's soul was to say exactly what Job's wife told him to say. Curse God and die. Job's temptation would have been to just say, I'm done. Forget it. It's not worth it to be faithful to God. I'd rather just die and be separated from him forever. Temptation is at the heart of the story of Job. The devil was allowed to harm Job's life, his, the things around him. Then he was allowed to harm Job himself, but not kill him. And Job became God's champion in that way in the Old Testament. But remember, we have a greater Job in Jesus Christ. One who Satan was allowed to harm his life, to bring dangers and troubles. Jesus lived in poverty his entire life. He left behind all the riches of the throne. He was allowed, the devil was allowed to harm the body of Christ through the crucifixion, which again was God's plan. Isaiah tells us that it pleased the Lord to crush him. It was his will to do that, to make atonement for sins. But whereas God stopped the devil from taking Job's life, Christ's life was taken. But was it truly taken? What does Jesus say about that? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Far greater Job in Christ who has conquered all temptation. So the devil is God's devil. God turns a situation wherein a Christian would be tempted to fall into sin and dishonor God, spurning the blessing of Christ's sacrifice, and rather gains great glory by our choosing Christ over sin. That's part of why temptation comes into your life. It's an opportunity for you to, just like in fasting, 
We choose to fast from something that is good and that we love so that we can say, Lord, I love you more. Temptation comes into your life so that you can say, no, I'm not going to forsake the Lord on this one. And he gets great praise for that. Be encouraged to press on in the battle, knowing that the sovereignty of God over all things, including the door of our lips and our mouths, our words, sovereignty over all things that means that though we may fall into sin, we will not fall finally into condemnation. 2 Timothy 2.13, a great verse. Even when we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny his people. He cannot deny himself. What an incredible truth. God will be glorified even in our faithless moments because God has decreed that the glory he will have through our weakness is of such value that he will not be denied it. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. This notion of sovereignty is what brought me to the use of this word submit in your outline. Let us rest under his sovereignty and his faithfulness to overcome opposition to himself and for his glory, opposition to his people, to us. So what else is God sovereign over? Our words. Set a guard, David prays. Keep watch. He says, David does not choose this kind of language without thinking of its meaning. Apart from the Lord's watching and the Lord's active guarding of the words of David, he knows that he's prone to speak before he does what? Think. If you think little of the matter of the temptations that would convince you there's satisfaction in saying what you really think out loud to another person, consider James 3, verses 1 through 12, which I forgot to bookmark. But maybe you'll go there as well with me. James 3, right before 1 Peter. Verses 1 through 12. Sorry, not 1. Yeah, 1 through 12. 3, 1 through 12. Let not many of you become teachers, my brother, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Anybody perfect? able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they're still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among its members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. And it is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and bird or reptile, creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send forth from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh water. Look at verse 8 again, if you're looking at that. No one can tame the tongue. So how does David pray? Set a guard over my mouth. Keep watch 
over the door of my lips. Consider Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 36 and 37. He says that people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. How terrifying to think myself justified, only to find out that in my words lay evidence that I never knew Christ. O Lord, set a guard over my mouth. How easily we give in to temptation. I need to take seriously these words as well in Proverbs 10.19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. In those moments where you want to get something out and you just want to make sure that somebody knows exactly how it is, exactly what they've done to wrong you, wisdom calls us to keep it in. Wisdom calls us to peace. Not to not deal with that fact, that with that struggle or whatever it might be, but to deal with it in light of Christ. So David knows this. He's asking God for his wisdom by calling upon him to set a guard over his mouth. Don't underestimate the destructive power of speech because James makes it very clear how destructive we are. And so he tells us earlier in his letter in chapter 1, verse 19, that everyone should be slow to speak. Says the guy with 3,000 words ahead of him. Seek the Lord in prayer that your words would come from a mouth that is guarded by the Lord. Consider your words in a way that is consistent with your worship. As James says again, from our mouths we bless the Lord and we curse each other. What a hypocritical thing to do. And yet we find ourselves there often, do we not? Lastly, in verse 4, submit your heart and your hands to the Lord. What comes out of our mouths is such a danger to our souls Because it is through the mouth that our heart does what? Speaks. Matthew 12, 34. If the battle of verse 3 is at the mouth, it is the war that is fought at the heart. So we acknowledge the need for a guard at the mouth and the hands and at the heart where it all starts. It's easier for us to manage words and deeds than heart issues. Should we ignore subtle pride or even a God-glorifying deed done or word spoken? Or perhaps even at a time where we're striving for contentment, or even desires in our hearts that we think we can entertain or manage so long as the doorway to our mouth or hands remains locked up. David prays, Do not let my heart incline to any evil. Our hearts tend to incline to evil as one might look over the edge of the Grand Canyon. We cannot be surprised at the slightest breeze that would cause us to fall. If I have an inclination to a specific sin, I may need to take additional steps compared to others in order to flee from it. If I have an inclination to pornography, I may need to take a different route to work in order to avoid driving past a crude bookstore. If shopping at a certain store stirs up envy over things I wish I could have but can't afford, and I begin to feel resentment towards God, I may need to choose a different place to shop. Aldi is really good for that. If having an internet connection at my home even results in me being incapable of doing anything else but mindless web browsing, I may need to cut the cord and even be willing to visit the library to check my email. There are some temptations that are simply unavoidable. God would not have you become a recluse in order to avoid everything and at the same time deny the Great Commission. 
If, however, we act in such a way that says, temptation is unavoidable, so there's nothing we need to do about it, there's a serious danger that we may not be bearing fruit of repentance from sin. For the foundational desire of a Christian to conquer temptation is not to save face or to be bolstered in fleshly pride, but the foundational desire for us to conquer temptation is to please the Lord who has saved us. David's God-glorifying prayer shows us temptation exists in our lives to give us a great platform to proclaim that Christ, the, in Christ we have a grace that is greater than all our sin. And so the hymn says, Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, brighter than snow you may be today. Even as I looked up those lyrics the other day to copy and paste them in, I was given other words that read, what can we do to wash it away? Whereas it ought to read, what can avail to wash it away? So I had asked the question, what can we do to wash it away? What can you do to wash away your sin? Nothing. Great resource, by the way, The Priest with Dirty Clothes by R.C. Sproul. Great book for kids. Nora loves that one. It's super long, but it's super worth it. Anyhow, that's an aside plug. What can we do? Nothing. If we could do nothing to save ourselves in the first place, how would we expect to have something to do on our own to keeping ourselves in Christ? Galatians 3.3, Paul writes, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? We all come to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But sometimes we act like we then keep ourselves and we then grow on our own and we create our own accomplishments on a foundation that we had nothing to do with. Simply not true. Hasten to us, O Lord. Give ear to our prayer. Set a guard over our mouths. Let our hearts not incline to any evil. Why? Because only he can make this happen in our hearts. And only he alone deserves the honor and the glory and the praise to be found in our obedience to his will. David prays that he would not busy himself with wicked deeds in verse 4 by being around others who do the same. You can identify the parallelism one last time and that these wicked deeds are synonymous with working iniquity. And there's even a third layer here. Let me not eat of their delicacies. We like sheep tend to go astray and are easily influenced by whom we spend most our time with. We need to seek wisdom in how, when, and whom we evangelize. Everyone needs to hear the gospel, but it's not your job to preach the gospel to every single person. Okay, Your job is to preach the gospel to anyone whom God calls you to do that. Right? Your neighbors, your friends, co-workers, family members, those kinds of people. Okay? We need to be careful. If we have a serious struggle in our past life apart from Christ, to return to the people who influenced and carried us in that way may be more damaging than good. It's a matter of wisdom. Befriend and love non-believers, but do not eat the delicacies of iniquity. 1 Peter 1, 14-16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Pray like David, leading up to and in your reaching out and winning people to Christ. 
You know, this verse, this, this idea of God saying, you shall be holy for I am holy, you might think that that means I need to start figuring out how to be holy. That's almost what it sounds like. But if you really think about it, and if you read the rest of Scripture for that matter, and if you do a study on this passage, you shall be holy for I am holy. The reason we are holy is because God is holy. And because we are his people, we then are made holy. Remember, Christ faced the ultimate temptation before his public ministry, before the cross. Adam faced temptation in a garden, surrounded by evidence of the abundance of God's provision for humanity, and he failed. Christ faced temptation in a desert and was victorious. Adam failed on a full stomach. Christ succeeded after 40 days of hunger. Do you remember who led Jesus into the desert? To be tempted? The Holy Spirit led him into the desert. Luke 4.1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Martin Luther said of this, temptation is the best school into which the Christian can enter. Yet in itself, apart from the grace of God, it is so doubly hazardous that this prayer should be offered every day. Lead us not into temptation. Or if we must enter into it, Lord, deliver us from evil. The God who allows temptation will by no means leave us alone and defenseless in it. Christ understands the temptation that you face each day not simply by his omniscience, but in the fact that he, who being fully God, also became fully human. He experienced the full strength of temptation. You've got to believe that the devil threw everything he had. I don't know about you, but he's never shown up at my house and said, you want the whole world? He said that to Jesus. I can give you all these things. The authority has been given to me. All you have to do is what? Bow down and worship me. There's the temptation. And it was a real temptation. You can't think of Jesus robotically just thinking, no, what Bible verse computes in this moment? No, there was a real temptation there. First of all, he was hungry. He was really, really hungry. Hungrier than any of us have ever been, I imagine. Having the whole world would mean that he could satisfy his hunger. It would maybe even sound like, maybe I can avoid this whole cross deal. If I could just have the world, if Satan would just hand it to me, all I have to do is bow down and worship him one time. What harm would that do? everything. If Christ submitted even in one instance to sin, he would no longer be the spotless lamb of God. Forget in your minds for a second about whether he could or what. Just think about this. We have in Christ a great high priest who was tempted in every way like we are and yet without sin. And he gives us his power. Listen again, Luke 4.1, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. Guess what you are in Christ? You're full of the Holy Spirit. You can overcome temptation. Lastly, 1 Corinthians 10.13. I hope you were waiting for it. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God will provide a way of escape. He provides himself. 